This is the Horse Radio Network. Hi, I'm Jennifer Wood. And I'm Jennifer Connor from Equestrian Business Women. And you are listening to Equestrian B2B, the podcast that brings together industry leaders, entrepreneurs, and equestrians for conversations about how they build and sustain a successful business. On today's show, we discuss how to stand out as a quality interviewee, how and what to negotiate, what to look for in quality employee candidates, why networking is important, and more. Our guest is Holly White, the human resource specialist dedicated to career development and mobility with the United Nations Population Fund, based in New York City, and who was raised on a standard bred breeding farm and competes in the adult jumpers. Hang around until the end of the show for some bonus content about how Holly found a way to ride horses in Africa. Equitana USA, the world's premier equine expo celebration, is coming to the Kentucky Horse Park October 1st to the 3rd, 2021. If you're looking to shop for you and your horse and learn from top professionals like Laura Graves, Danny Waldman, and Jim Masterson for three full days, and then enjoy a spectacular evening show, this is the place to be. All equestrian B2B podcast listeners get $10 off tickets now through July 31st with code EQB10. Get yours today at www.equitanausa.com. See you there. Hi, Holly. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Jen. It's great to be here. So we're glad to have you here today um, to kind of talk about your job, what you do, some of the interview processes, because one of the most important things is in business is getting good employees. Very true. Yeah. And I'd love to hear, you know, your um, thoughts on the process of, you know, what you look for as an employer in an employee during an interview or potential employee and, you know, also tips for those who are interviewing, like how can you best present yourself um, to an employer? And I think it would be great to, you know, preface that with a little bit of your background and why you're an expert on these topics. And um, and I read your bio um, and was extremely impressed and wanted to know more about how you got into um, the United Nations Population Fund and what your work there entails. Okay, great. Um, well, I'll start you know, with a little bit about my background. So I am a human resources professional. I've been working in the field uh, for more than 20 years, probably dating myself a little bit, but not too too specific, <laughs> but I have a lot of experience. Um, I did work in the private sector. So for some big companies like M&M Mars, Kraft Foods, Philip Morris for about 10 years, which was great training for me as an HR professional to sort of understand how businesses work. In 2008, sadly, I, I was affected by the financial crisis. I lost my job and I was looking for more meaningful work, uh, not necessarily targeting the United Nations, but I happened to be out to dinner with um, a girlfriend that I went to undergrad with. And there were some, she works for the United Nations and there were some people there that worked for one of the UN agencies, because keep in mind, the UN is a huge organization. Um, there's the UN organization that hosts the General Assembly every September, but then there's a number of mandate-driven organizations um, that are called funds and programs, like UNICEF, which is focused on children under age five. Um, I'm currently working for the agency that's focused on ending maternal mortality, ending harmful practices like early marriage and female genital mutilation. 
and then um, also um, supporting uh, life-saving commodities, so supply chain to um, the emerging markets, basically. Um, so those are mandate-driven organizations, and um, and that's where I'm working now. So it wasn't I wasn't necessarily targeting the UN, but I wanted to do something more meaningful because when I think about human resources, is about people delivering great results for an organization, and and the UN is supposed to be making the world a better place. So I guess the key nugget there is networking is really important when you're looking for work. Um, and interestingly, um, I got to UNICEF um, through a horse connection. So even though, oh really, uh, <laughs> wow. So, um, you know, I, my mom, um, a friend of my mother's said, oh, I know this woman, she works for UNICEF and she rides horses too. And so I literally just sent her an email and said, hey, I ride horses and I've been consulting with the United Nations Development Program. Would you like to have lunch? And so we had lunch for probably, you know, randomly for about a 12 month period. And then an opportunity came up at UNICEF and she recommended me. Of course, I had to go through the interview process, but I ended up getting right. selected. So it's always important. Um, And I think the other key is networking is important. And it's not only sort of in business context, like you might be, you know, a horse connection might give you a job opportunity, you might be at the gym and other other places. And then it's important to sort of make your um, interest known, if you if you will, send it out to the universe so that people know that you're looking. And then things actually, um, you know, come back to you. And what drew you to wanting to work in HR? I sort of fell into that. So, of course, as every horse-obsessed um, <laughs> girl, I was thought I was going to go to vet school. Um, so mm. um, I did. I went to Cornell undergrad, and I would say, like, I wasn't the best science student. So... <laughs> <laughs> So I knew getting into vet school in the U.S. was going to be difficult. And I, at the time, was not, um, I think, looking back, I probably wish I would have gone to vet school um, and, and, you know, pursued it elsewhere. I could have gone to Europe or or the Caribbean. Mm. But at the time, it was something that I was um, not willing to do. Um, And so I sort of was like, I sort of fell into HR, to be honest. Like, I had a temp job that my sister had gotten me and... Um, I was working at Philip Morris as a, as a temp in, um, human resources. And I was studying actually thought I was going to become a teacher mainly because I would have the summers off to ride my horse. But then when I was working in, uh, you know, for Philip Morris and human resources, I really enjoyed what I was doing. Um, and in fact, through networking, um, they referred my resume to Kraft Foods, which was one of the operating companies of Philip Morris. And I did my summer internship. During, um, I ended up switching to business school, um, and I ended up doing an internship with Kraft and then working for them full time for six years. So I think okay. you know the message there is like you start out with a plan, but sometimes like you know as date as like experiences come along, you sort of then you you need to regroup a little bit and maybe make some different decisions. So for in sure. your job, in your job right now, you do a lot of hiring, right? Because I know recently you told me you had like 15 positions that you were looking to fill. Are they, were they positions that you were looking for a specific type of person for, or did you have to kind of put together different people and different positions? How does, how does that work? So um, right now I'm responsible. I have done a lot of recruiting in, in my experience. And right now I'm responsible for recruiting what we call our leadership positions. So we operate in 130 country offices um, and the, the country representative and the deputy representative and the operations manager 
are all positions that I'm responsible for for recruiting um, for. So we we did have a number of openings because also we rotate. We have different rotational periods. Um, so we we sent we we kind of move people from country to country, and we did a rotation exercise. And there were about 15 positions that were not filled after the rotation exercise. So we had to go through the process of recruiting. And so for these positions, I mean, they, since they are country leadership positions, we are looking for people who are good people managers, um, people who, because of our sensitive mandate, because we are an organization that is focused on a woman's right to choose when and how many children she'll have. So that concept of women's empowerment, um, and a woman choosing what she wants to do with her body is a challenge, um, a challenging sort of conversation to have with certain groups. And so we right. need managers to have these um, very difficult um, conversations with government to like actually advocate for our mandate. So it's the communication and advocacy for a sensitive mandate is really important. Um, right. We also need to mobilize resources. Like we, because um, we are, under the funds and programs of the United Nations, we actually mobilize all of the resources that we need to like deliver our programs. So they need to talk to donors and foundations to actually get um, these organizations to invest in, in our, in our agency and then delivering results. Like you need to be able to make sure you're getting things done for your beneficiaries or your clients in the private sector they're stakeholders, you know, so this is something that we're looking for. So good people managers, communicators, being able to advocate for a sensitive mandate, mobilize resources and deliver results. I was just thinking, you know, the first couple that you that you listed there, um, I think are qualities that kind of are across the board when you're looking to fill a position, no matter what the job description is, right? I, 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 I totally agree. And I think it's one of these things where people always tell me like, oh, I'm preparing for an interview. What should I prepare for? And I say, you know what? The, you, we, when you think about a manager, they want people who can work on a team, work with others. You need yeah. somebody who can communicate, right? You know, verbally written, get stuff done. You need to deliver results. Um, and, you know, then there might be some area of expertise or specialty. Like you need to, depending on like, if you're interviewing for a finance specialist, you need to have that, you need to have your technical skills down, right? So mm-hmm. that technical side, but on the sort of people side of things, I always say communications, working with others, delivering results is really, you know, really important. Do right. you think women have to have to prepare differently than men for interviews? It's a, it's a really good question. I mean, when I personally, no, they should not have to prepare differently, right? You know? right. But, but reality is, I mean, I think one of the things I've known with women is that when they're applying for jobs, like they feel like they need to be 150% qualified for a job to, to apply for it. Whereas a guy will look at it and say, like, they've got half of the requirements down. Oh, I can do that job. So I always tell people that, you know, women in particular, that one, they got to apply. If they if they think they can do that job or they're really interested in that job, you need to apply. Like that's step one. Because guess mm-hmm. what? You're not going to get the interview unless you apply. So, um, right. you know, that's one thing that women need to do. I think personally, um, I think I don't. I don't. I mean, I'm. I don't um, want to say that women have to do things differently. I'm just going to basically say that when you are um, going to an interview, it's always you know. Be, 
over prepare and which I think women do naturally. So it's interviewing is a skill. So practice, um, mm-hmm. and practice with your friend and record yourself. Like you can even just read questions off and just put out your iPhone and record yourself and hear your responses. How are you presenting yourself? Are you using filler words? Are you making eye contact? Um, you know, these are some things just to be, uh, prepared for. And I think, um, you know, women also, you, it's helpful to know who, who is on the interview panel because it's always more knowledge is power. So like if you're going to be on an interview panel, um, and there's going to be a finance person and maybe a, a marketing person and maybe an HR person, you can do some research to find out like, okay, where have they worked before? Um, maybe even, so, you know, some social media is really powerful. You can kind of see what kind of posts they might be sharing. So like, what's their background and interest? So therefore you can, um, customize your responses a little bit more towards them most likely the finance person is going to ask you a question about data or finance, the marketers, communication, HR is going to be the team. So like, how can you think about experiences you've had and come up with examples of where you've demonstrated these really good examples of communication, um, delivering results and working with others, for example, and then come up with really great questions at the end. A lot of times, you know, I always say use your all the time you have available um, when you're interfacing with a hiring team. So like in marketing, we call those communication touch points, right? So, you know, use your at the end, you have a chance to actually ask some meaningful questions. And the smarter the questions you ask, it shows how motivated you are for the position. So if you've done some research, maybe you're working for a company that's gone through an acquisition, or maybe they've divested, or maybe they're doing a new strategy or something's in the news about a new CEO, ask questions about that because it shows that you're really motivated because you've done your homework. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, so it, and then at the end, I always say send a thank you note because it's another chance for you to reiterate your interest in the position, another chance to demonstrate that you're motivated and that you, um, you know, really enjoy the conversation. You've taken the time to actually yeah. um, send that thank you note. Yeah. And you're thoughtful about it and, you know, you would care to be a part of that team. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so how would and, somebody find out who's on the panel, the interview panel? Would they call the HR department? How do they find that? So typically the person you ask who sends you the invitation or calls you up to say, we have an interview. I would, it's normally the HR person. I would ask, ask that person and just say, would you mind sharing um, who's going to be on the interview panel? And by the way, also what type of interview it's going to be, because if you're interviewing for a consulting firm, for example, it might be a case study. Um, it, it, you know, so there's all the different types of interview, maybe the HR person's going to have you set up like a phone screening type interview with another colleague. Um, you know, is, and, and also the other thing too, is make sure the hiring manager is on the interview. If there's a panel, make sure that the person you're going to be working for is on the panel. And if the person's not on the panel, it's a bit of a red flag. Um, maybe there's a reason for it, but before you accept the job, you want to make sure you know who you're going to be working for. Because if you look at staff engagement, like there's a strong correlation between the quality of your manager and how engaged you are. And so it's really important because I always say you could be working for like the best company in the world, but if you've got the worst manager, your life is miserable. And just the exact opposite, you could work for the worst company, but have the best manager and your life is pretty good. Right. Oh, that's a great tip. I would not have thought about that. And, you know, I think people usually 
I, or in my experience, you know, interviews are one-on-one. It's not necessarily with a panel. And I think people would assume the person that they're interviewing with would be the person who, you know, manages them. But that's not the case in a corporate structure. Not always. And actually, when I interviewed at Blue Chip, I had a panel of people that interviewed me. Like going for a really? farm job. Yeah. Going in for the farm job, the farm manager was there, the CFO, um, the office manager, the president was there. I mean, I knew the president and that's how I got an interview. But there were like four or five people in the interview, which really took me back because I had worked a little bit in the corporate world. But then when I was going to a farm, I was like, oh, it's a farm. It's a breeding farm. <laughs> and I'm like, but I, you know, I dressed and I brought a resume and it was like the first time anybody had ever brought a resume <laughs> to their interview <laughs> at the farm. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So it was, I mean, it was good. And I didn't even think about that though, that, that the person I was working for would actually be there. I mean, they were, but I, I didn't mm-hmm. even question that, you know? I think that's another good point. When you, when you do an in-person interview, always bring extra copies of your resume. Cause you assume that like, Oh, people have sent the resume around or they have it because they technically should the hire the panel have should have done their homework about whom they're interviewing, but that doesn't always happen. So always have extra copies, a pen, a pa- piece of paper, et cetera. Just, you know, do be prepared. Hi, I'm Piper Clem, publisher of the plaid horse magazine and host of the Plaidcast on horse radio network. Do you have questions how price is determined in our industry and who is working in your best interests and the inner workings of how the equestrian community functions? What are your best choices with a limited budget? How do you expand your equestrian horizon? If any of these have been your questions over your time in this sport, check out thepladhorse.com slash college. I teach college credit classes at Clarkson University, where you can learn about the intuitive right decisions that can actually be wrong, norms and customs masking irrational decision making, and business as usual looks very different under an economic microscope. Learn more at thepladhorse.com slash college. These are online asynchronous classes designed to work around your horse show schedule and open to everyone. Last semester, we had people ranging from age 13 to 60. So come join us. Learn more at thepladhorse.com slash college and learn to calculate the true value of an investment in this industry. Learn to play the game by making the most of your resources and learn to think more productively, more creatively, and more rationally. This is a masterclass in understanding the incentives in the horse world. And looking at it from the other direction um, as an interviewer instead of an interviewee, what um, you know? what is something that interviewers should be asking of the people that they're um, the candidates that they're looking at. So this is um, always a challenge because there's a lot of people that are managers who sit on interview panels who are not skilled at asking questions. Like, because just as it's a skill for an interviewee to be really good at it, an interviewer needs to be good at it too. So the quality of your questions are really important. And, um, there's a number of different types of interviews and a lot of, um, interview types are what they call a competency based interview. Um, and these are basically the situations of tell me about a time when you were faced with a, a conflict on a team. Um, what were some of the, the steps you took to address it and what was the outcome? So we, you ask like these situational questions and they're looking for specific examples from the candidate. 
But a lot of times an interviewer is going to be asking what we call the marathon question. They'll ask, oh, tell me about the time when you had the conflict and who was the conflict with? What steps did you take and what was the outcome? And instead of actually just asking that first open-ended question and allowing the candidate to respond and then asking a follow-up probing question to dig a little bit deeper to see, okay, well, how, how does this person address conflict? Um, are they a conflict seeker, avoider? Um, you know, what are some of the communication skills? How did they resolve it, et cetera? So um, an interviewer really needs to know specifically what are the requirements for this position, basically. There's the technical requirements and then the competency requirements, are, which is basically about how you get the work done. And then how do you come up with really meaningful questions to determine whether this person can do the job or not? Um, and so, and like I said, it should be like a, a, a good dialogue. It shouldn't be what I always call the sort of the rapid fire questions, because I always say like, if you're at a cocktail party and someone comes up to you and asks you like five questions in a row, you're going to think that person's a little weird. So the same thing in an interview, you know, like the interviewer has to ask an open-ended question. The person responds, you follow another, another question, et cetera. Um, and the other thing I tell my interview panel members is that, Um, don't try to trick the candidate. Like there's something where, you know, in the the UN, like they don't want to tell the candidate what the competency we're looking for in the question. And I'm like, why are we trying to trick the person? We're trying to figure out, is this person going to be skilled, qualified to, to actually do the job? Are they going to fit in with the team? So we want to create a, like a good environment for this person A nice, you want to build some rapport, you want to make the person feel comfortable so that they can share with you what they know, and we can make a hiring decision. Because when you think about how expensive a hiring decision is, like in the UN, in the UN system, we ship people off to different locations, and there's a very good relocation package, and plus you're paying a pretty good salary. And so they were, someone did, this was like 10 years ago, an estimate of making a bad hiring decision for like an entry level manager in the UN, it was like a $250,000 mistake, you know? And so it's one of those things where you have to realize this is like an important decision to make. And as a hiring manager, you really need to come up with um, really meaningful questions that are going to help us gather enough data to determine whether this person can do the job or not. And that includes not just an interview, but we do sometimes a written assessment. So we might have them do a technical test. They do an interview and then we check references and we check supervisory references. And I know this is difficult in the the U.S. context, but we try to talk to people who have worked with this person just to get a better idea, another data point to consider when making a hiring decision. Right. I think reference checks are extremely important and and being able to ask the right questions of those people as well, you know, rather than just um, tell me what you like about this person. I want (laughs) to know what the difficulties are there too, if I'm hiring someone and then I can decide, you know, is this person worth that potential issue? Um, That's what I find in my... I always ask, if you, if you were given the chance to hire this person again, would you do it? <laughs> yeah. That's a good, I've gotten that a few times from reference checks of someone who said like, I would totally work with them again. I, you know, we would want them to come back or something like that. And I think that always gives you a great idea of the type of person that you're looking at. Um, and 
in the in the corporate HR world, do you guys also deal with the kind of specifics when it comes to hiring as well? You know, once the interview is over, like putting together the right type of package and 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 finding out, you know, is that do you find that it's better to be, you know, here's what we can give you or do you talk to the person and find out what's important to them in terms of benefits and that sort of thing? That, that is a very good question. And I will say I've been out of corporate HR for a while. So in the UN system, we have sort of like a standard package. Um, yeah. But I, but it, you know, just in terms of like some of the recent developments, I think in how we're working with more remote work, for example, yeah. I think more people are looking for that option. And so it's kind of a positive because on one side, you could actually open up your talent pool to a broader, you know, broader geography, because honestly, you don't have to be limited to people who are just like, in, in your geographic area, you could, you know, open it up much more broader. And I'm even wondering about work visas, like if someone is working for a US company, but are based in India, like, you know, do you have to worry about like a H1B visa or whatever? So, Mm -hmm. um, but in any case, I know that, um, you know, one of the things that like when you're looking at compensation, first of all, it has to be total rewards. It's not just salary. It's your salary. It's your bonus. It's, is there, is there a contribution? Is there a pension? Is there a contribution match to your 401k? Do you have all these other benefits, um, that, you know, are included? And I think it's important that you sort of like look at the total rewards and that, um, you know, money is really important, but if you look at like when you're measuring money, it's, they call, they consider it a hygiene factor. There's a certain amount that you need to survive, but then once you go above that level, like you can't just throw money at people and think it's that you're going to make them happy. It's actually not the case. Like employers need to realize that there's other motivating factors that people work for an organization. So like quality of your manager, the ability to develop yourself. So can I go Mm -hmm. to this organization and develop my skills? Do I have some autonomy over the work that I'm doing? Am I making a difference? So these are some things that are coming into play a little bit more in terms of, you know, how can you be like what they call an employer of choice? Um, And it's not just about money. It's about other factors. And you know, I don't know exactly how corporations are doing it these days. When I worked in the private sector, we sort of had salary scales. Um, and we would ask for your current salary, which now you're not allowed to ask for in New York State. Um, but we'd yeah. ask for your current salary. And then we'd try to give you like a little bit of an incentive above that. Um, but we also understood the total reward strategy. So we try to understand like, okay, what were you know, what, what are you what is your current package? And then how can we, you know, match it with what we're offering? Um, and I think with women, at least I've, you know, in, in the past, we, we earn 80 cents in the dollar. And it was, you know, I was told, oh, well, it's because we don't negotiate. But then there's been some additional research out there that says we actually do ne- try to negotiate, but we're not as successful as men in getting a like a, a better a better salary, for example. Um, interesting. Yeah. So interesting data point. But I always say that you know, it doesn't hurt when in doubt ask, because you already have the offer. I mean, someone's not going to rescind your offer. Although I did have an example that that, that this did happen to someone. And I said, well, you can probably take that person to court if you wanted to, because they, you know, when they give you an offer, that is a legal document. They've given you an offer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you can accept it at that amount, or you can try to negotiate. So most organizations will not rescind the offer. 
Um, and therefore, it's, it doesn't hurt to ask because honestly, if you do accept an offer and you, you lowballed yourself from a salary perspective, it's really difficult to make it up because, you know, there's sort of the promotion, which is a standard percentage increase. Um, and the only way that you're actually going to get market rate for your salary is to go back and change companies because yeah. a lot of internal organizations sort of like their compensation doesn't necessarily keep up for market. Um, in order to sort of get market rate, you do have to sort of change jobs, but then that affects your pension or your 401k and some of your tenure sort of elements. You need to make sure that you're making a, a job change for the right reason. Yeah. Do you think there's a trend that people are looking for something specific now, like more than more than their salary? Like, are they starting to look for a work-life balance or are they looking for other benefits? Uh, you know, is there one thing that you see people seem to be asking for or wanting? I mean, I think that for sure with the with the new reality, people are definitely going to be wanting to work remotely, at least in a hybrid model. I think like not having to go into an office, I think is something that people, at least in the short term, are going to be really embracing. I think the younger generation definitely is embracing work-life balance. They're not someone who's like, I'm going to sell my soul to the devil and work hundreds of hours. They're like, no, you know what? I'm, I'm interested in my hobbies and my in my life. I'm not going to be sending emails on weekends. Um, and I think also the, um, you know, the other piece is, is the sort of working for companies who are, um, have, have more of a purpose. Um, there was a big push right. before the, um, before the, um, the, the pandemic, which was really more focused on the sort of environment sustainable. Like, I think it was, um, BlackRock came out with like their CEO was one of the big, the first ones to come out and say that we're, you know, really going to be focused on more of these um, funds that are focused on, yeah, environment, social responsibility, purpose. I forget mm -hmm. what the, what the sort of the moniker is, but of course, then when, then I heard that, oh, well, these companies who say they're working on these green funds are actually investing in, uh, and uh, petrol companies, fossil <laughs> so fuel, fossil fuel. Yeah. There's a little bit of like an integrity <laughs> issue there, but they're talking a good game. So I think right. younger younger people are looking for a purpose and work life balance for sure. And uh, but yeah. also on that other piece is is the ability to learn and grow and and do something you know like having me a meaning in their job. I think it's that like, fulfills you, you. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think so. Yeah, and I think. Um, you know, it's funny, we talk about work-life balance, and then we look at the equestrian industry and, you know, how much we have to do that is not normal um, work hours. I mean, anybody who's been around a horse knows it's not a nine-to-five Monday through Friday job. So, I think for employers, especially up front, is making it clear, like, okay, here are my expectations of you, and, you know, you're going to be working these weekends or, you know, there's going to be some late nights, but in return, you know, the other weeks of the year, you can have that time off that you want. But um, yeah, like you said earlier, communication is so important and, and being upfront about it. And I like to think of work-life balance more like a pendulum versus the yeah. a scale. 
you know, because sometimes it does it. Sometimes it swings more towards your work and sometimes it's more life and sometimes it's right in the middle, right? But uh, I think that if you look at it like a scale, it's, it's always going to be skewed one way and then, then that's going to get you down. Yeah. And you can't think like, this is how it is all the time and it's never going to change. You know, I think for me, you know, I've accepted my, the January, February, March, I don't have days off. I work seven days a week for 12 weeks straight. And then I, but I know that that sets me up in order to have an easier summer. And, you know, I don't travel for four months for work and I'm okay with that because there is that balance. I work really, really hard at the beginning of the year in order to have more time, especially when, you know, I've got kids now and they're out of school in the summer. I do want to spend time with them in the summer as well. So it's, um, yeah, I like the pendulum (laughs) idea. Well, I mean, Holly, you and I both know from the breeding industry, right? It's like a, it's like a mad sprint from January till June. And then, you know, you get a little bit of a break and then it's selling yearlings, but at least, you know, when your break is coming, you know, and for me and for me with Decker right now, you know, we have a huge December, like it's a really big push in December because of AAEP and all the specials that we do and, you know, trying to close out the year. So um, I think it's good if you can, find a point where you're like, okay, I see the light at the end of the tunnel, right? Yeah. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. I love the pendulum. Somebody else had mentioned like work-life harmony, right? Because it's like, how do you sort of like, you know, sort of like harmonize it? Because it's true. It's never a scale. Um, And I think, you know, um, Jen, you had mentioned communication is important. And that means that you as an individual, when you're communicating to your manager, um, that, you know, you might have to be working these seven days straight, but you know, when you need some flexibility, you need to talk and say, listen, I need this time off or I need this. Mm-hmm. So there is that sort of two-way ability to sort of manage responsibilities so that you are still getting some things done during that really busy period. Um, and yeah. the other thing is being able to sort of have a little bit of autonomy over your work, I think is really what people are seeking as well. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. if you're able to, it's like really focus on results. Like what do you need to get done? And if it's something like right now with I have a seven month old. I do like take a bit of like uh, an after I work in the morning, I take the afternoon off and then the baby goes to bed and then I work at night. So it's sort of like Mm -hmm. I'm getting the work done when I can get the work done. So just focus on I'm getting it done by the deadline, but allow me some autonomy over like when I can get stuff done. Yeah. And the employers have to allow the autonomy, but the employees have to know that they have to fulfill their end of the bargain. You know, if I'm giving an employee afternoons off, then yeah, I do expect you to, to get the work done. However it gets done, uh, choose your hours, but make sure that everything's getting accomplished that we set out to do. So to finish up, we have some rapid fire questions that we ask. So the first one is what is one action that women can take to make a big difference in their lives? I think be, be authentic and true to yourself. So know what you want and don't be afraid to go after it because you deserve the best for yourself. Great. And um, number two is what is the best habit that keeps you motivated? You know, keeping yourself like getting enough sleep, drinking enough water, you know, kind of like taking care of yourself healthy health wise. I think because one of the things is like you can never, that's not something you can get, get back. So 
the sort of when you're taking care of those, um, your, your health and wellness, then you're able to sort of take care of challenges and things like that. So it's really important. I think probably sleep is the most important thing to me right now, probably because I'm not getting enough of it because I'm still breastfeeding. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Um, The third question is, what is your favorite horse movie? Oh, well, you know, there's so many. I mean, I love like the Black Stallion, like movies and books. Um, I love Seabiscuit. I thought that was actually really great. But probably the biggest tearjerker was the Farlap movie. I don't know if you guys remember that yes. old movie. Mm-hmm. So I know there wasn't one, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll say Farlap is your, uh, your My choice. My favorite, yes, Farlap. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Holly, for joining us today. It was really interesting to talk to you about your experiences. And I think your advice and your insight will be so helpful to all of our listeners. Great. Well, thank you so much for the time. It was really, I enjoyed the conversation. So thank you again. Since 1937, the Chronicle of the Horse has been the industry leader in coverage of national and international sport horse competition. Advertising in the Chronicle of the Horse magazine, its companion lifestyle publication, Untacked, or their dynamic website, social media platforms, and e-newsletters will take your company's message to the largest English-disciplined competition equestrian audience in the United States. They've been ringside since 1937 and welcome your brand to join their community today. Visit them at coth.com. That's C-O-T-H for chronicleofthehorse.com. So I loved Holly and our conversation with her. I thought she brought up really interesting points that I hadn't thought of before. But I also loved how she talked about networking and how important it was to her and how it got her the job um, that she has now and how horses and people she knew in the horse world helped her get an interview. Um, Because obviously with equestrian businesswomen, networking is what we do and what we promote and what we try and foster. So um, I really loved her point about that. Yeah, I think it was a really good point because honestly, that's how I've gotten a lot of my jobs. I mean, even my job at DECRA, my friend worked for DECRA and he was the one who kind of pushed my resume up the totem pole in order for me to get the job. So I really think that opening yourself up to network with people, as more people you know, the better off you are because then you have reach and mm-hmm. and you you never know who's going to be able to help you right yeah and i think you know once you have those connections and if it leads to an opportunity she also talked about um really advocating for yourself and asking for what you want and asking for what you think you're worth so i thought that really will resonate with people Um, because so many times you think, and maybe it's, I don't know if it's a female mindset or if it's everyone, but, you know, if you apply for a job, you think, okay, this is what it is and this is what I'm going to get. And you don't think, oh, I could ask for more or I could ask for it to be remote half the week or something like that. So I liked hearing, um, you know, what they do, um, for hiring practices and, and how people can incorporate that into what they ask for, but also what you offer employees. Yeah. And I think that in my lifetime, I should have advocated for myself better 
in the beginning when I was negotiating salaries, but also there was a point in time where I left a job and instead of communicating with them and saying, hey, I'm looking because I'm not happy about this and this. Can we change it? Can you help me move forward? Can you help me professionally and personally grow? I just left the job. And, you know, I was intimidated to ask those questions and say, hey, you know, I, I like my job, but this is what I need to stay or I need help with and, and growing. Absolutely. I, I was the same way. And like throughout my twenties <laughs> and I think it's harder. I think it's a lot harder when you're younger to, and you don't have that experience to back it up. Um, but I think, you know, once you're in a job and you've shown your value and, and what you contribute to the company, then you can, come back to them and say, look, I need to have something more. Yeah. And don't you think that sometimes women think that they're just supposed to give it to you, right? If you work really hard and you show what you do, you think that they're supposed to see that and give it to you. But that's not necessarily the case because there's so many other pieces to the puzzle and so much else that's going on that, that people aren't just concentrating on you and what you're doing in your job. As long as you have the results, that's what they're looking for, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're not always thinking about your personal fulfillment. So (laughs) you've got to make it known. And communication was the other thing that Holly talked about. So um, those are some really important pieces to take forward from this. Yeah. She's really a fun person and she has a a worldly knowledge that I really Mm -hmm enjoy talking to her about and finding out more. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm having so much fun doing these podcasts with you and learning and meeting new people. And I can't wait to keep talking and and be able to share this with everyone. Yeah, it's been amazing. So I knew from you, Jen Connor, about some of Holly's background and some interesting stories. So I wanted to know how she rode horses when she was based in Africa. Um, And we have some really fun content um, for our listeners to listen to about how she did that. I I thought it was really cool that you worked in Senegal, maybe just a, a little slice of life story (laughs) of your time there would be really cool. Cause I think, you know, not a lot of people have had experience like that and, and what it's like there and to work and to live. And did you ride horses while you were there? <laughs> and, you know, and I, I did actually. I mean, it's interesting because if you are working for the UN, I think from a career wise, career um, development perspective, the real work is being done in these more difficult locations. And actually, Dakar, Senegal, everyone called that Africa for beginner for beginners because it's <laughs> it, it's still Africa, but it's still like a, it's a pretty nice location. And in fact, I yeah. did ride horses. So Jen is familiar with <laughs> my story about yes. how I, um, I, you know, there was it was kind of a, a little bit of a sad tragedy. So about three weeks after I left for Senegal, um, my one of my horses had a pasture accident and died. So it was like, you know, so I had a little bit of insurance money and I wasn't planning on buying a horse, but I did buy a horse. (laughs) And Senegal? No, from France. And she imported it into Senegal. (laughs) What were the quarantine restrictions? 
there there are none. I there mean, weren't any. No, no, there's none to get them there. But no, um, getting them about, home, getting yeah. out. Yeah, getting him home. Yeah, he had to stay there. Yeah. Oh. Because there's African horse sickness, and I could have tried right. to import him, but it was so. I mean, you'd have. I'd have to. It was like a 30 day quarantine, and then he would have. If he tested positive for African horse sickness, then he'd either either go back or be euthanized. He couldn't stay here, basically. Wow. So it was one of those things where I mean, just the expense of it was just too much. But I did, you know, call Connor up and say, "Hey, do you have any ideas for yeah. me?" At one point, we were looking into shipping hay cubes over to her because he was <laughs> not doing well on peanut leaves. I know that's oh, what they yeah. eat—dried peanut leaves. Um, and also, yeah. I ended up importing food like his grain from France because he also is is being challenged. They did have like local grain, but then of course, you know, the quality of the grain mm-hmm. that you're feeding is not the same so you know he's he he's colicked a couple times um so that was a bit of a challenge but you know i will say um you know if i I had to do it i would not have bought a horse again like that was a bad idea but i did you know i did actually ride and i think that you know having the opportunity to be able to ride and do something i love even in that challenging context actually kept me sane if you will um, working in Senegal was definitely uh, an interesting experience because I I come from a more business background. And so being transitioned into um, what I would call more of a traditional like African mindset, it's very focused on like your boss knows everything, like you really can't make decisions on your own, um, was a little bit of a challenge for me. So the work was difficult. But I think from like an overall life experience of meeting people living in, um, you know, an environment that, you know, you um, take, it's like almost like the things that you take for granted in the US, like when you turn your water on, like water comes out. (laughs) You know, know, I mean, when I was looking for an apartment, I had to make sure that there was a backup generator and that there was actually backup water, because a lot of times water is cut off. And in fact, before I'd moved to Senegal, they had a water issue and there was no water for 30 days. And that some, um, like the American government was delivering water to, and like tanks to their employees, but like the UN really wasn't doing that. So I had to make sure that like there was a backup water source. Um, driving was a totally different animal. You know, I'm like on dirt roads and like, you know, driving, there's no road signs. That was another thing. Like, you know, Connor knows I'm like perpetually late and perpetually lost. And so like, I'm like, what am I going to do? There's no road signs. There's no like, you know, there's no addresses. I mean, it was really kind of an interesting experience, but I'm thankful that I had that exposure to life and work outside the U S. Um, and it also, I mean, and it showed me that I can still, you know, I still was able to ride horses, believe it or not was wonderful. Um, I made some great friends travel to some very interesting places. So, Yeah. That's really interesting. And like you were saying before, how important networking is, I think experiences like that are so important too to really round you out, you know, no matter what kind of business you have, um, those life experiences only add to what you can do and, and broaden your horizons. You know, if you're looking to start a company and you've been somewhere and had to problem solve like that, it'll help you in the future in your business. No, definitely. And I think the other thing, the other sort of key learning about this experience, I mean, truth be told, um, I was hesitant about going because when I had applied for these jobs with the the UNFPA, 
I wanted to go to Istanbul, which was a little bit closer to Europe and sort of like a, you know, an assignment that I felt a little more comfortable with. So Dakar actually having to operate in French, which even though I've studied French my whole life, my French is not as great as I want it to be. So that was like, these are big hurdles, but it's one of those things where you have to sort of stretch yourself and put yourself out of the comfort zone a little bit. Because mm-hmm. um, if you are going to, you know, take the plunge to start your own business, like you have to be ready to take some risks and, you know, realize yeah. that it's not going to be easy. And, you know, that network, but also support group, you know, and, and yes. Con- Connor knows mm-hmm. I'm always like using, I use her a lot as a, as a supportive friend. Um, and that's something that you have to realize that when you're trying to do, get things done, don't try to do it all on your own, you know, know what's available to you in terms of resources and, you know, don't feel like you're, you know, you'd have to like, you know, climb the mountain alone, that there's people out there right. that can help you. Find the links to today's guest and the show notes at www.eqbusinesswomen.com out twice a month on the 1st and 15th. You can have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. You can follow us at eqbusinesswomen.com as well as on Facebook and Instagram. The show goes out to all podcast players. Wherever you get your podcast, you'll be able to get it over the next couple of weeks. Now, go build your network.